With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang up and listen is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Go to bombas.com slash hang and get a free pair with your order or 20% off. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 19th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the NFL's conference championship games, wherein the Seahawks staged a crazy comeback that made Russell Wilson cry, and the Patriots are being investigated for using deflated balls in their route of the Colts. We'll also talk to Fred Gadelli, the coordinating producer for NBC's NFL coverage about what goes into televising the Super Bowl. We'll be joined by our hockey guru, Greg Wyshynski, to talk about Latvians and the all-star vote, to talk about P.K. Subban, the Montreal Canadiens defenseman, and other important NHL matters. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll have Mr. Goodelli back on, and he will walk us through the Odell Beckham catch, the greatest play in NFL history, which was on NBC earlier this season. Joining me in Washington, D.C., it's Stefan Fatsis the author of the books, Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, Ola Stefan. Hi, Josh. And with us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Thanks. You know, we didn't send a thanks. Is that like the right word to say? <laughs> Hello. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were we against thanks. You like, you're welcome. You should have just said you're welcome. He just you're had an out of body experience. <laughs> you're welcome, Amir. So we didn't set this up beforehand, but it would have been really good because it would make me look more gracious if um, you were, let me prompt you. Uh, guys, 
congratulate me on my great tweet about uh, Russell Wilson. <laughs> oh, you love that tweet. That was <laughs> yeah, an awesome tweet. I'm so Mike. proud of my own damn tweet. Great tweet. Say I had a, you can say, say I had a twist ahead. on You want to read the tweet? Go ahead. You want me to read the tweet? Would that make you feel better if someone else read the tweet? That's what I'm saying. You I want me to read the tweet? Gracious. Right? All right, hold on a second. Let me find the tweet. Find the original tweet and then say, and Mike, oh, wait, I should write? be filling. I should be filling here while Stefan yeah. looks for the tweet. Tweet. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody in the room is is miming stretching taffy right now. <laughs> this is like Ronald Reagan. Uh, 20, fa- 20 foul balls because hey, the Mike. ticker's broken. Hey, Mike. What? Yeah. You had a great tweet over the weekend. Oh, which one was that, Stefan? Well, somebody had tweeted. Ben Greenman had tweeted. Yeah. He's Russell- funny. He's funny. He's I have a lot of respect for Ben Greenman. Funny guy. Funny guy. He tweeted, Russell Wilson is throwing like Woodrow Wilson. That's not very nice, but maybe true. Because that was earlier in the game. Right. With the Woodrow Wilson comparison. I remember that. And Yeah. uh, And then you wrote... What did I I tweet? You wrote wrote this? Oh, my God, Mike. You wrote, differences, Woodrow managed 14 points. See, you got to remember, at that point in the game, I don't think the uh, Seahawks had scored. That was pretty good. I'll, I'll admit it. That was pretty good. That's a great tweet, Mike. Nice work. (laughs) <laughs> so i feel really good <laughs> not necessarily about what just transpired no 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 <laughs> i feel i feel a little bit uh bad about that but on the whimsy watch front everyone uh correctly identified the whimsy watch for this week i feel like i've trained america well vis-a-vis nfl whimsy and that was michael bennett riding the policeman's bicycle on the field after the game it was just like wade boggs but the horse was a bicycle. <laughs> um, he just took the cop's bicycle. You know what? I'm, I'm holding a bottle of water. I ripped off the label. Because yeah. The maker of this bottle of water is not a sponsor of Hang Up and Listen. Oh, good. Um, he said, I just took the bike. When you win a Super Bowl, you can do anything in this in the city. I took it from the cop and just rode it around the stadium. I bike all the time. I'm a real biker. I've got three bikes at my house. So I was just having fun. Best bike ride I've ever had. That is a mm-hmm. whimsical fellow. But there was also in-game strategic whimsy. The strategic fake, whimsy. Sh- the field goal. The, fake, the field goal was strimsy. It was the a fake good field goal, and you had two fat guy touchdowns. One for the th- one for the Seahawks and one for the uh, for the Patriots. I think Baylor redefined the fat guy touchdown. Yeah, that guy was like four hundred pounds. Yeah. yeah, I mean these linemen. I think if it's a lineman, it's automatically. Slotted yeah. into the category. So, so Michael, I think Solder. I think Solder's not really a fat guy. He's lithe. He's for a, a lineman. Tackle. He's a line. Even if he they were converted, <laughs> converted tight ends. But that's okay. Still All fat right. guys. Once you wear who a number a starting with a seven, yeah, you're a fat guy. So Michael Bennett, the dude who rode the bike to celebrate, his Twitter handle is Moses Bread seventy two, because he wanted his handle to be Moses Beard seventy two, but misspelled it. <laughs> and so he just kept it. That's pretty Moses Bread seventy two. That's some off field whimsy for you. But he, po- he pones that. Let's start with the uh, Seahawks victory, since we already kind of started with the Seahawks victory. Because I know Mike Pesca likes win probability stats. Um, this is a recurring. I know him segment. off the top of my head. This is a recurring segment on Hang Up and Listen. Mike Pesca wants to know the win probability stats. With three minutes to go in the fourth quarter, Seattle had a two percent chance. To mm-hmm. beat Green Bay, according to advanced NFL stats. A minute and a half later, a minute and a half after they had a 2% chance to win, Marshawn Lentz scored on a 24-yard uh, touchdown run and grabbed his crotch to give the Seahawks the lead. Seattle, 
ended up winning 28-22 in overtime. On wait, wait, what was his win? What was the win percentage oh, after that, Marshawn Lynch point, grabbed was, his crotch? I know it. it. At that point, it was an 88% chance to win. And then Green Bay drove the field and gave themselves a 50% chance to win. Then they went into overtime, and Seattle wound up having a 100% chance to win. The percentage odds of Marshawn Lynch grabbing his crotch. Oh. That was 100, I think, after that <laughs> touchdown, wasn't it? Approaching. No I liked the way he scored that touchdown, though. Just over the line, stopped, knew he crossed the line. There was no risk involved. There was no careless behavior with the football. Crossed the line and stopped. I it was a it. very demure crotch like grab. over the line. Compared to his past crotch grabs, which he has been fined for. He'll probably be fined. But I hope the NFL takes into account that it was a very demure crotch grab. It was a demure I touchdown. Some... It was fitting the way he scored the touchdown. It was, it was appropriate. Okay, so my favorite thing about this game was that uh, Russell Wilson threw the touchdown pass in overtime to Jermaine Curse. The first four times he threw to Jermaine Curse, he threw interceptions, which must be a world record. That shows how many things went wrong for Seattle in this game and how many things had to go wrong for Green Bay for the Packers to lose. So some of those things that went wrong for the Packers, Mike McCarthy's decisions to kick field goals on fourth down three times, the first two being the most egregious. From the one yard um, Giving up a fake field goal for a touchdown, uh, the Packers did, and having a backup tight end fumble and onside kick with a little more than two minutes to go before that uh, crotch-grabbing touchdown. Um, Stefan, what did you make of what the Packers did to lose the game as much as what the Seahawks did to win it? Full disclosure, didn't see the game because I was blowing a chance to finish second in a Mike, what did you think Carolina? of the... Uh, the uh, Packers, you know, losing the game as much as the Seahawks won the game. Or, Stefan, you can, you can answer. I could have answered that question. Stefan, Stefan, Stefan. We now revoke your card. Cannot um, do everything. This is a recurring problem with the championship games. There's yeah. a tournament that my daughter and I go to. It's okay. So I was having a couple of thoughts. I think that it wasn't the greatest game ever. I think it was the greatest ending ever. And I started in my head comparing sport to drama. And what if drama worked that way? Sport has it a little easier, right? It was not a terrible game. I was compelled, but just judged on things like execution and also strategy. I mean, the, the Green Bay kicking field goals on Seattle's one, really terrible mistake. Don't even know why they did it. They're usually a little less risk averse than that. Taken the whole way, not a good game. But when a game has such an exciting ending, we call it a great game. And it was, and it was. And you know, I wasn't bored during the entire game. And of course, during the last five minutes of playtime, that was as exciting as you ever see. But could you imagine if drama worked that way? If at the end of just the world's worst play, there was this reversal and some guy you didn't expect to be the murderer was the murderer. In fact, isn't that how every Law & Order episode works? Isn't that how so every I, M. Night Shyamalan movie works? Yes, basically, this was M. Night Shyamalan. And maybe we'll find out that uh, the last airbender, like if Seattle keeps doing that, his Rotten Tomato scores will go down, down, down. I also want to say that upon closer inspection of the supposed teeming number of fans who left the stadium and weren't allowed in, I don't buy that. I looked, I was there at the Heat game when all those fans left the stadium and they were streaming out of the aisles. And if you looked in the stands, they were very full and it was very loud when Seattle was making the comeback. And all these pictures of the fans who were outside the stadium, like a bunch of them are wearing security garb. So they weren't fans outside the stadium. One guy has a dog. I'm going to say he didn't go to the stadium with the dog and leave. There were just people. It's in a neighborhood. All right. It's in like, you know, an 
neighborhood that used to not be a neighborhood, but it's in kind of a neighborhoody place, and there are definitely bars there. I bet people just walked over. Also, there were a couple guys with cheese heads outside the stadium. <laughs> I think Seattle is getting way too raw a deal for this. Well, a lot of who the people, hell was the Packers fan who left the stadium? No, a lot of people will go to the game, but like not actually have a ticket and just right. hang out. Right. Or maybe there's it, bars there's nearby. Bars, and maybe the man and the dog. Came, maybe the man and the dog came to the game separately and just met up afterwards. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a meetup. Maybe it was like a uh, barkter. Maybe that was Peter King's dog. It's Seattle. Maybe they have a section inside the stadium for people to bring their dogs. And the dogs get to ride bikes after the game. Right. So Mark Helfrich, the Oregon coach, said about going forward on fourth down in the championship game, you have to do what you do during the regular season because otherwise your players will get the sense that you're treating the game differently, that you basically are not doing what brought you there all year, that you're being more conservative. So they went for it on an early fourth down against Ohio State, didn't get it. You got the sense in this game that Mike McCarthy was doing the classic, not playing, not to lose. Yeah. And they get down to the... it. I think saying that they were at the one-yard line on the first one was kind of underselling it. They were like... <laughs> basically, the line? football was touching the goal line. And to not go for it there, you're just throwing away points because the there, expected yeah. value, if you don't make it when the other team starts on its own one-inch line is like you, your team is more likely to score next than the other team. And then when there are four minutes to go and Green Bay just continually runs the ball when they have the best quarterback in football, the likely MVP, again, is just playing so conservatively and not doing what they would do in a regular season game because they did this repeatedly during the regular season when they would throw at the end of the game instead of just trying to run the ball into the line to run the clock down. Well, well, well not even that. The interception with five minutes left where the green where the Packer defender just went down. I mean, he should have he had some field in front of him, not saying it would have been a touchdown, but that's clear indication there that they're doing the trying not to lose thing. I want to respond to two things because I haven't had a chance to talk because I've been disqualified from talking because I had to finish the Scrabble game. No, because you admitted, you, game. Admitted you admitted it. The first is that one of the things that made this such a great game, Mike, is that all of these poor decisions were made earlier and that Seattle played so horrifically. I mean, Russell Wilson's quarterback rating was seven before, you know, with five minutes to go in the game. Eight for 22, 75 yards, four interceptions. Credit to Peter King whose column was filled with information and was execrably written this week. But he writes at like four in the morning. It's hard to, hard to criticize a guy for writing at four in the morning, you know, uh, and turning out 6,000 words. Um, he did watch the game. He, yeah. He did watch the game. Intended audiences, people who are at he did, not only did he not, <laughs> not only did he watch the game, he, I'll just read his lead, Seattle, in the Seahawks locker room, maybe 45 minutes after the NFC championship game ended, I stood and looked around. It's a gripping lead. <laughs> All right, move on. <laughs> move along, Stephen. Move along. Um, the second thing is to Mark Helfrich and doing what you did during the regular season. Of course you don't do what you did during the regular season. During the regular season, you're not playing the best team in your conference every week. You do have to adjust your strategy. You are on the road in a hostile environment, and you should take risks. I mean, that's the point. Green Bay had to consider so you itself— be more- you should be more more or less conservative. You should be more or less conservative. So the fail there wasn't that that he was playing not to lose. The fail there was that he didn't recognize that he was an underdog in the situation from the beginning. Hostile crowd, difficult environment, terrific defense, opportunity to score from the one inch line. How do you not go for that? So the Packers did basically every category of wrong thing that you can do in a game as far as coaching strategy, they screwed up. And then 
as far as coaching planning, like they screwed up on the fake field goal. Robert Klimko of Peter King's MMQB had a good That's fantastic breakdown story. of how the Seattle special teams coach recognized that there was a particular guy on the Packers, um, reserve linebacker Brad Jones, who just recklessly would try to block every single field goal and would not um, you know, keep his assignment. And so when the Seahawks were down 16 nothing, desperate need of a touchdown, they called this fake field goal, and it worked exactly as the Seattle coaches thought it would. And the Packers had apparently not done the self-scouting to realize that this guy was just like completely blowing their assignments. And, and that's then, what was fascinating about that piece in that situation was it really reflects the depth of preparation. You know, we make fun of the depth of preparation in the NFL, but here's an example of how it is so interesting strategically. I mean, the assignment here for the Hauschka, the kicker, and John Ryan, the punter who is the holder, was to run this fake only in that situation, if he lined up on a particular side and was clear that he was going to storm after the kick to try to block it. It was incredibly precise. It could only happen in this given situation. And they had practiced it. I mean, it's it's really I mean, it, that's what is impressive about football. Well, we and, talked and about this. We talked about this last week. But Seahawks uh, special teams coach Brian Snyder, he was the same guy who recognized the weakness in the Carolina field goal protection that allowed Cam Chancellor to the basically jump. vault over and block a kick on him. It didn't actually work, but it was a good design and good planning and good thinking that allowed him to vault over the line. And then the third category of thing, which the Packers screwed up, is just player execution, which we... They really like, should have executed a few of them, <laughs> yes. Which we like to call, you got to make that catch. you got to make that play. So on the onside kick, uh, Brandon Bostic, the backup tight end, he is apparently just supposed to block and allow Jordy Nelson to make the catch. But he made the decision in the split second, I'm going to jump up and catch this ball. It bounced off his face, and the Seahawks recovered. Bill Barnwell of Grantland, I thought, made a good point, which is that if he had blocked and Nelson wasn't able to reach the ball, then he would have been excoriated. And so it's hard to criticize a guy for trying to make that play or is it actually hard to criticize the guy i think it's instinct and i find it hard to fault the guy i mean you don't know exactly where the ball is going to land your instinct is to jump he's a receiver he's yeah he's he's, not like some linebacker he was a receiver yeah if his job was to block why is the why are they putting in the backup tight end and not brian beluga he's he's a lineman (laughs) bulaga bulaga Brian, Brian Beluga. <laughs> this is his nickname, Baby. <laughs> yeah. And then I saw the special teams coach yelling at Bostic, and I'm thinking, like, the coach really, this is called, I think, what psychologists would call sublimation. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, what kind of coaching philosophy is he trying to impart? And then it was reported, oh, he's a blocker on the play. That's a thing? I had no idea that was a thing. Anyway, if these guys were so great at, like, you know, strategizing special teams, they wouldn't have the dude bull rush on every play. Good point. And the Seahawks at the end of the game, they started running zone read plays, which were incredibly effective for them in the last quarter and an overtime again, making a strategic change on the fly. It seemed like the fact that everything went wrong for Seattle forced them into the kind of like desperate high variance moves that ended up succeeding for them. And that the Packers, which they made some really good plays, like Clinton Dix with interceptions, like their defense was playing really well. But the fact that they were in this lead kind of led them it's sort of like there was this paper we talked about a few years ago like why every nba team makes a run makes a comeback just like the packers decided like all right we don't actually need to do anything we're just gonna stop 
We're going to literally slide on the ball and everything will be just fine if we stand perfectly still. Yeah. Unlike some teams, the Packers tried to take the air out of the football. I will take that transitional opportunity, Mr. Pesca. In the AFC, the Patriots beat the Colts 45-7 to and looked pretty much as amazing as that scoreline would suggest. Tom Brady threw for three touchdowns. LeGarrette Blunt ran for three more. The Pats' defense held Andrew Luck to 126-yard passing. But all anyone is talking about is the accusation that the Patriots used underinflated balls as a way to help Brady and the Pats receivers get a better grip in the wet weather. The NFL allows each team, for whatever reason, just gives each team the opportunity to prepare 12 balls before the game, which are inspected by officials two hours and 15 minutes before kickoff, because that is the precise amount of time. Two hours and 15 minutes. That's, yeah. The balls and, and just need to settle. At 70 degree Fahrenheit, that is the precise temperature that games played in January in the Northeast. <laughs> um, the balls are supposed to be inflated between 12.5 and 13.5 PSI and weigh in between 14 and 15 ounces. There's also the K balls used by kickers, which Fatsis will get into, I'm sure. According to a report in Newsday, Colts linebacker Dequell Jackson thought something was up after he intercepted a Brady pass in the second quarter. He gave that ball to an equipment manager who told Colts coach Chuck Pagano, who told NDGM Ryan Gregson, who told NFL director of operations Mike Kinsel, who told officials on the field. <laughs> the NFL says it is now investigating. Patriots coach Bill Belichick was characteristically terse when asked about the alleged underinflation, saying, I really don't know what to say. Or know anything about what we're talking about here. Whatever it is, we'll cooperate with them the best we can. Uh, Stefan, you've read about this. Mm-hmm. What, do you, <laughs> what do you What do you think? I've touched footballs. Yeah. What do you yeah. qualified? Examine the fossil record. You, oh, I think it's completely plausible that they let some air out of the balls in those two hours and 15 minutes. Um, I mean, the reason, I mean, I've read a few people say, why do they allow the teams? Well, because they have to allow the teams. That's where there's equipment managers and staff and things that inflate footballs. I mean, all of that is a in pump, the home team's air locker pump. room. An I got air one. Pump. I got one. They could just bring the little one that I <laughs> yeah. use. You know, the one you squeeze to fill the balls up. <laughs> yeah, Not gonna, so precise, but works. Goodell says the NFL is going to be a $25 billion business. But, you know, they can't afford an air pump. <laughs> So, I mean, equipment managers do that, and th- there are these lines of procedure. But at the same time, when and, you know, I've stood on NFL sidelines. It's all fairly informal. You know, who's holding the balls? They're in a bag. It's not like there's an NFL official, you know, standing guard with a revolver to make sure no one touches the balls or takes them into the locker room. So it's perfectly plausible that the team recognized that, yeah, you know, let's let out a half a PSI or a PSI. No one's really going to notice. It'll give Tom a little bit better grip. It would not shock me in the least that that happened. And what should the penalty be if that happened? There's a, in the rule book, it stipulates like $25,000 um, reports. I don't know what the source is on this, but Bob Kravitz, who an Indianapolis <laughs> reporter, who initially broke the story it was like the Patriots could lose draft picks. Draft picks so yeah. I don't know where he. I think I think from. I think the penalty should be that Bill Belichick should have to at his next press conference actually inflate twelve balls using one of those little hand pumps. The, the, a twenty five thousand dollar fine. The teams hold twelve balls in a bag. Were these rules all crafted in the Hupmobile <laughs> showroom? What the? the <laughs> That's for, an excellent for, NFL uh, creation <laughs> reference, Mike. Very impressive for all the you know, talk of the NFL being the supreme 
force in our culture. There's so much half acidry going on with the NFL. You know, one important thing about football is the football. Manage the football. In baseball, they give a damn about the baseball. Like everyone's always looking at the baseball. <laughs> the, the, the umpires hold the baseball. Why do the NFL teams hold the football? I will tell you this, though. For all the, like, I believe it and it's plausible, going to be absolutely impossible to prove because you have a rumor of a rumor of a rumor or a report of a report of a report. So when it's up to seven different people saying it, it's beyond hearsay. It's like he said, she said hearsay. And also there's no But they no actually way to... have the literal ball. But big yeah, deal. Anyone big can deflate deal. that. And the other thing is the on a cold day, it. it's cold temperature effects. Right. Temperature effects pressure. There are the Guy, I think he was a Frenchman, Guy Lussac rule about inert gases in relationship to temperature. <laughs> so a ball inflated to 12.5 PSI could definitely lose a whatever degree. I also think that there's this weird thing going on where everyone hates the Patriots and it's fun to jump to the conclusion. And, you know, sports gives us one of these chances that you don't have to do the whole innocent until proven guilty. You just jump on him and say, I hate Belichick. But if Belichick were at all a guy who cared at all about not being the biggest dick possible every second of his life, people would look at this as, oh my God, what gamesmanship. Belichick has gotten into people's heads again. Even if it's not true, it's something else for the opponents to think about. But because, you know, he is Emperor Palpatine, because he is a Sith lord it's just this horrible thing i think it's funny and there's no way that they'll ever prove it unless they get a whistleblower well, and, and would we even be having this conversation if it were not the patriots i mean because we want to believe that there is the the darth vader story here um well, michael USC rosenberg was, usc was fined yeah because he's for lane this kiffin. because of lane, lane kiffin, kiffin. Right. Patriots, the, yeah um except without all the success but <laughs> <laughs> right. same dickery not as much success. I think we'd believe it that way. Let's list the teams that we'd believe it about. The Jets, the Cowboys, the Patriots. Definitely not, you know, what about the, the Saints? Uh, Giants. Bounties. The Saints. Yeah, now we might believe it about the Saints. Not if Drew Brees were involved, but if one of the more secular Saints were involved. <laughs> The other thing about the balls, the K-balls real quickly, Michael Rosenberg had an incredibly paranoiac accusatory screed on SI.com that really doesn't have much evidence to back it about the Darth Vaderness of Bill Belichick. I think his, his citation for his sources was well-founded whispers <laughs> in, the, in the NFL. He also got wrong about the K-ball, so quick K-ball aside. Kickers want the K-balls to be deflated. They don't want to kick a hard rock. The problem, the, the reason K-balls were instituted was that kickers were abusing the footballs. They were beating them with weights and putting them in dryers and scuffing them up. Anything to soften up the leather and give anal, your foot a little bit. There was some anal feeding and some waterboarding. You want your foot to have a slightly longer impact on the ball so there's more trampoline effect. It's easier to kick a, a mushier ball than it is a real hard ball. Belichick has you guys in the front pocket of his hoodie. <laughs> Um, uh, they I did, they did spy on the other team's uh, <laughs> defensive signals. We don't know. Time. We will never know. We it will never be known. No. I but think I also there... said there's no doubt that it's plausible that they did this. It also could have just been the equipment assistant who carries the right. balls during the yes. game that took sure. it upon right. himself. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so you're saying it's totally plausible that they did it. If they did it, we shouldn't care. And there is an evidence that they did do it, and so we shouldn't we jump shouldn't to conclusions. So we should care sure. if it if it comes out that they did do this. If there is solid evidence, totally. If somebody tur- like Eric Mangini yeah. is the one who revealed Spygate because he went to another team. So let's say next year, a assistant 
Josh comes McDaniels. out and now, it can't says, be Josh McDaniels because yeah, we fired did, and then right. go back yeah, we to did the this. Then you would say it is a big deal if they. Well, did no, it. I, I say it's the, a big deal I, if they did it. Period. I'm saying it would not shock me in the least were they to have done it. I think the NFL should hire a former FBI director with ties to we've, other owners. We've interviewed to tap everyone's We've interviewed phones. millions of air molecules. <laughs> All right. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas Athletic Leisure Socks, re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better. That I, Josh Levine, am wearing right now. I can report that the socks feel very comfy, especially oh, in like the sole the, I area. I like the aqua stripe at the top. Two stripes. Um, it has a Stefan-approved electric blue stripe. And the sole especially gives me the kind of cushion that makes it feel like I'm walking on a cloud. Or if perhaps not a cloud, then at least a very comfortable sock. One that's crafted from Peruvian Pima cotton. The electric blue accent that I mentioned, you can also get them with blaze orange, lightning yellow, and hot pink accents. The style and comfort of Bombas are a great thing, but there's an even better reason to buy these socks. Since socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, Bombas donates a pair of socks for each pair bought, more than 150,000 pairs to those in need since launching in October 2013. Go to bombas.com hang and you can get a free pair of these great socks with your order or get 20% off your choice. Again, go to bombas.com hang and get yourself a pair or buy one as a gift. And for each pair you buy, Bombas will donate socks to those in need. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. On Sunday, February 1st, NBC will broadcast Super Bowl 49 from Glendale, Arizona. And I, for one, am happy about that. I think NBC has the best football broadcast going, and I'm not the only one who feels that way. NBC's Sunday Night Football has won the Sports Emmy for six straight years for uh, Outstanding Live Sports Broadcast. It's on pace to be the top-rated show on television for four years in a row. The man behind the NBC broadcast, coordinating producer Fred Gadelli, will be helming his fifth Super Bowl this year. During the Television Critics Association's winter press tour, he said it would be a huge disappointment if this year's game didn't break the all-time broadcast record of 112.2 million viewers. So everyone, please watch the Super Bowl. So Fred is not disappointed. Don't watch for the Seahawks or the Patriots. Watch so Fred Goodelli will not be disappointed. Fred, thank <laughs> you for shocked by that. For, yeah. for that matter. Okay. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Fred. Good to be here, guys. So first, let's just get some of the basic facts down. Like, how many cameras do you bring, and what's the difference between uh, the Super Bowl and a regular game on that front? You know, a regular Sunday night game, we have somewhere between, you know, 20 and 25 cameras for this game. All in, we'll probably have, you know, 40 to 43 cameras. Every camera is recorded, so it could be replayed. Even cameras on it shooting the game are recorded for whatever, I'm not sure, but they are recorded. So, you know, from an equipment standpoint, you know, that's really the, you know, the, the basic difference. So I read a piece from Deadspin in 2012 that said that you actually have a high school team rehearse the yeah, plays? Yeah, on Friday. We pick a high school team. Uh, you know, we're not the only ones to do that. Uh, I think all the networks do that. We pick a high school team to come on in on Friday, and uh, we, you know, coach them up during the week. I have two guys who coach them up, and we put them in the proper numbers. We let them wear their regular uniforms, and we run through the offensive and, and defensive schemes and sets that, you know, in this case, the Seahawks and the Patriots will be using just so we can get, you know, a real, you know, glimpse at the camera angles, which we've been in the stadium before, so that's not a big deal. But to really give our camera people an idea of what their assignment is going to be on every single play and how it can change, you know, based on the formation and the people in the game. So 
it's really invaluable, and it really kind of gives you a great sense of confidence heading into Sunday. Wait, who coaches them up? Do you get like ex NFL coaches? Well, I got to tell you, Does one Tony year, Dungy come down from the booth and well, coach you know, one of the teams. It's funny, you know. One year I had Hall of Fame coach John Robinson do it. That was Madden's final year on the show uh, for the game in Tampa, and he did it. Which I'm sitting there going, I can't believe I have a Hall of Fame coach doing this for me. But <laughs> Coach Rob did it for me, and. Um, this year, uh, or the last couple of years, I have two guys on my show. One guy who used to really travel on Madden's bus with John. His name is Wade Junko. He's just a phenomenal football person. Amazing name, Wade yeah. Junko. Wade name. Junko on Madden's bus. And then another young man by the name of Ryan Myers who played quarterback at Colgate. And they really understand the game at, you know, a, um, you know, at a pretty sophisticated level. And they know what... They know they work on the show, so they know what we're looking to do. So it's a pretty good marriage there, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Did the high school kid playing Barrett Robbins go AWOL? No, don't answer that. <laughs> my, my question is, with 43 cameras, we're still going to get, and when the coach challenges the spot, you can't really see it from that angle. That's well, got to be frustrating. You, if we had 100 cameras, uh, I'm not going to lie to you here, uh, you might not have the shot because – it's really about the way the bodies are laid in a particular scene as to whether or not you could see all the definitive things, the ball, the yard marker, the line to gain. And sometimes it's just the way the bodies are, you know, are laid out that you can't see it. So I've always said we could have 100 cameras and you might not have the perfect angle. It's like a crime scene. I do think with challenging the spa penalties, it's an, it's an area where maybe the people making the rules got ahead of what the technology is. Like they say, oh, you should be able to tell, but you know, you really can't tell. You know, it just depends. I mean, if there's a gross error, yeah, you can tell. But if we're talking about, you know, inches, you're not going to be able to tell. And... You know, uh, replay has taken on a form that I don't think anyone's really, you know, when replay was reinstituted, I don't think anybody envisioned it would be what it is right now. I mean, we don't celebrate touchdowns or, or, you know, interceptions or fumbles or things like that. We investigate them, and we look for reasons why they're not what they are. And I'm not sure that was the spirit of what replay was supposed to be. But that's certainly what it is right now. And, you know, to me, it's frustrating at times. And raise a glass yeah. here. You mentioned replay to the death of Tony Verna, who invented instant replay yeah, back in 1963. Yeah, I read that this morning. Yeah. And I've always said that one of the reasons the NFL is so popular is because it embodies the spirit of forensic videography. But that said, do you think if the NFL went to some version of uh, pass interference using replay to investigate pass interference, the technology would be up to it? Yeah, I don't think there's any question the technology is up to it, but how long do you want your game to last? Because, uh, you know, I know there are coaches, Bill Belichick foremost, that wants everything challengeable and reviewable. Every call in the game could be challenged and reviewed, and I understand his point on that, but, again, how long do you want this game to take? Because if you look at the time between touchdowns now, I mean, even touchdowns that to me are no-brainer touchdowns, you know, you know, those things are going over a minute between the time the guy crossed the goal line and the time we kicked the extra point. So do you want them to be like, you know, the national championship in college football when it's four hours? I don't. I don't have four hours to kill. But, you know, that's what we're talking about. I know, here. 60 million people who tuned into the Seahawks Packers might, uh, might didn't seem to have a problem with the length of the game. But that's overtime and that's different. And that, you know, that, that, that know. was, you know, a finish for all time. But if you're talking about a normal Sunday night game, I mean, 
I mean, you, you watch a normal Saturday college football game, you're in for a four-hour experience. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. I want to get back to the, the number of cameras. You said 40 cameras. Can you compare that, put that in context for us to Super Bowl of 10, 20, 40 years ago? And B, is the addition of all the cameras helpful because of the way the game has changed, not just because you can provide better pictures and more angles, that it's faster and we need them? Well, you know, the first Super Bowl I did, which was Super Bowl 37 in San Diego, I believe we had 33 cameras or 35 cameras. I mean, that was probably the last SD standard definition, you know, Super Bowl telecast, I believe. But most of these cameras that we put in this year are to have defining looks at the critical parts of the field. So we have cameras shooting down both sidelines. We have four cameras shooting on each side of the goal line. We have cameras shooting on the back line of the end zone. And that's where a lot of the addition of these cameras, you know, that is the genesis of them to make sure that on any critical play, touchdown, in or out of bounds, that type of thing, you're going to have cameras in the position that's going to give you the best chance to have the definitive view. But again, if bodies are in the wrong place, you know, there's not much you can do. I remember in uh, Super Bowl 43, Roethlisberger scored a touchdown on the first series of the game. And it was, you know, it went to review because it was his knee down before he went in. And all our goal line cameras were obstructed by bodies. So the camera that provided the definitive look at whether or not Roethlisberger's knees were down before it crossed the goal line was a camera at the 50-yard line on the reverse side of the field. So you just don't know you know, based on where the bodies lie, what the best angle is going to be. You have a chance, you have an idea, but you also have to be somewhat fortunate. You talk about the unintended consequences of replay, and maybe it's not how the NFL intended. Like, how weird is it for you, Fred, to know that, like, before, like, when you first started this, like, if you have a bad game as the producer of the Super Bowl, it's like, you know, maybe you'll be pissed, maybe your boss is will be pissed. You could like have an effect on the outcome of the Super Bowl <laughs> if you don't put the camera in the right place, if you don't get the shot. Like the, it it could all be down to you, Fred Gadelli. Well, I mean, look, you think, Is that I mean, fair? Think Is that, that accurate? Sunday, I think about that every Sunday night because just like the referee doesn't want to cost anyone a game. I mean, certainly television. I mean, look, this was never our this was never our idea, you know, to be involved in officiating. It's just the way it evolved and we're we're involved. I mean, there's just no way around it. Unless the league wanted to go to its own independent camera and replay system, you know, they rely upon us and you know, I take that seriously because at the end of the day, you know, the fans want the call to be right, you know, so if we've got to provide the defining look. So what you say, I definitely think about, and we try to put ourselves in the best position to have a uh, definitive answer on every play that could be challenged. But that's your decision. That's not the league telling NBC, you know, we want to have an extra 10 cameras this week. No, no, that's our, no, that's our decision because you don't want to be deficient, you know, in the biggest game of the year and perhaps the biggest moment of the year because you didn't put enough cameras out. You know, I mean, we don't put the cameras out, per se, to cover the game better, because we can cover the game tremendously with the cameras we have on Sunday Night Football. These cameras are added to make sure that we can have the definitive look at the crucial plays in the game that might be in question. So one thing that I don't understand about the modern football broadcast is that I think that they've become more analytically sophisticated. John Madden had a lot to do with that, walking through the X's and O's. But 
NBC and everybody else, I feel like you guys still don't really talk about the advanced statistics analytics around, say, fourth down decisions or going for two. You'll have an analyst, whether it's Collinsworth or somebody on another network, being like, you really shouldn't go for two there or you shouldn't Mm -hmm. go for it on fourth down. But it's not supported by historical data generally. It's not supported by win probability stuff that you'll see like on Twitter. This is what fans are talking about all games. Do you feel like there's a place for more of what I'm talking about? Or is there a reason that you don't do it more? Well, I just think that in a live environment, uh, you're talking to a really, really, really small percentage of the audience when you're talking about the things that you just suggested right there. I also think that every situation is its own. I don't think that you can say, hey, you know, 80% of the time they make it on, you know, fourth and two. Well, what if, you know, the guy they run behind isn't isn't here today or is hurt today or got hurt during the game or that running back isn't in the game at this point? So, look, I understand analytics. I understand why people, uh, some people enjoy it and stuff like that. I just think that you're talking to a real small percentage of the audience and, I don't know how relevant history is in this particular moment. There, one recent trend is to get the ex-NFL official sometimes in the booth or virtually in the booth. Correct. Is that going to expand to some other area of the game? I know you don't want the booth to be too crowded, but I think that's been a boon. But like analytics, I mean, you could deploy a that guy. Could be one. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could. I mean, but even the replay, even the official, there's one guy, Mike Pereira, who's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And then I haven't seen anybody else who can touch him. Uh, I've seen a lot of other people who have been not as helpful as probably they intend to be. So, again, what are you doing? Are you just muddying the scene, or, or are you trying to make it clear? Mike Pereira makes it clear, and he's rarely wrong. But even Mike has been wrong a couple of times this year. And that just shows you how you know complicated and sophisticated the permutations of these rules can be. So, you know, look, we'll have that on Super Bowl Sunday if need be. But, you know, could you put analytics in there? I guess you could. But to me, this is for enjoyment. This is about people and players and coaches and personalities. And I just don't know if what you guys are talking about trumps what I'm talking about. How different is preparing for the Super Bowl? You guys interview coaches and players throughout the week before the game. Is it harder to do that during Super Bowl week? Are the players and coaches less willing to divulge strategic information than they are at other points during the season? Well, coaches and players are, in general, less desirable to, uh, you know, uh, impart you know, strategic information just because of the day and age we live in. When I started doing this in 1990, it was completely different in terms of what you got from players and coaches than it is today. And I understand that. But we spend one whole day with each team. So we'll go to, you know, the Patriots practice on Wednesday and, and spend that day with the Patriots and, you know, meet the coaches, meet the players, talk about the game, you know, try to gather their insights. Then on Thursday, we'll do the exact same thing with the Seahawks. So that preparation really isn't that much different than we do for a normal Sunday night game. You know, you just have a lot of other responsibilities, you know, that the 30 minutes that leads up to kickoff with the teams coming onto the field, with the National Anthem, America the Beautiful, the coin toss, all that, you know, those are things you're doing now that you you only did a couple of times during the season and not to this magnitude or not for this long a period of time. So that eats into it a little bit. But, you know, the Super Bowl, as I'm sure it is for the players and the coaches, 
you know, you're just presented with a lot of distractions that you don't normally have for a regular game, whether, you know, it's, I'm talking about internally, you know, about, you know, people needing something or, you know, you know, needing your time or can we do this in the show, you know, things of that nature. Those are the things that come with the Super Bowl. So you just have to embrace them and, and kind of have fun with it. Yeah, but from week to week, some of the best stuff you get is from those interviews. Uh... Oh, no question. Oh, there's no question. I'm, I'm not downplaying the significance of it, but I'm just telling you that will Tom Brady be pretty forthright with us on, in, in our meeting? Yeah, I believe he will because he always is. You yeah. know, I don't think that's going to change. But, you know, there are some, you know, there are some players and some coaches that will look, you know, hey, we don't, we don't want to leave anything to chance here that this could get out, although we could never get out. Trust me on that. How is Belichick in those meetings compared to other coaches? You know, again, I mean, over the years, it's really evolved. I mean, I've been in meetings with Bill over the course of 25 years, where he would, you know, tell you, look, we're not even going to try to run the ball. We're going to come out and probably throw it 25 straight <laughs> times. And then it happens, you know, hmm. or to be honest with you about a player, thing of that nature. And not that he's dishonest. He's not dishonest. Think, but Did they tell you not. about the um, ineligible receiver plays no. before the Ravens game? No. And you know what's funny? We were at practice on Thursday and never saw them run that package in practice because, you know, you go to practice to, to see what they're going to do in the game. And a lot of times... That answers your questions without having to ask a player a question, you know. But no, we never even saw them run that package, and uh, no, they didn't tell us, but we didn't ask. So, did you, you feel know, like you guys did a good job of covering that in real time? I did. The play happened, and the, the next play was a touchdown. And then in commercial, our guy Wade Junko, I was telling you about who runs that Junko. practice. He's my yeah. spotter. Love Junko. He said to me, "Hey." Go check. I think they only had four offensive linemen and had six guys lined up as eligible. And then I have a guy in the field, and I said, "Ask the, you know, see if you can find out what Harbaugh was mad about." And he was mad about the fact that he wasn't getting time to adjust to this and line up. And we were able to piece it together in the commercial and, turn, and came right out of the commercial with it. So, yeah, I, I mean, not to, I don't want to sit here and pat pat ourselves on the back, but I'm not sure how many crews would have gotten that that quickly. I want to ask you about the game uh, a few games ago. It was the first game after the Mueller report came out, and it was up to uh, your announcers, Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels, to discuss that. Right. And Chris Collinsworth in particular, Roger Goodell was in the building, came in to, for some criticism because he said that uh, the entirety of his remarks, I believe, were the decision to suspend initially Ray Rice for two games was a mistake. Roger Goodell has admitted that, but I never once in all my dealings with the commissioner ever doubted his integrity. And I think that came out in the report as well. I was critical of Collinsworth because I think that that was beside the point, and it made him sound a little bit like a mouthpiece for the NFL, even if that really is his thoughts. My question to you is, did the NFL in any way put you in a bad position, or do you have any um, regrets or would have liked to have covered that any differently? I mean, the NFL didn't even know we were doing it. You know, it's something that we discussed, Al, Chris, myself, because we were the first game after the Mueller report had been released, and it was less than 48 hours after it had been released, and Roger Goodell was going to be in the building. That, that we knew. So in my mind, you know, we had, a, we had a responsibility to address it. We talked about Al's part of it just trying to be language from the report itself so there wasn't any editorializing or things of that nature. And then Chris said, hey, look, this is what I feel. This is what I want to say. We were in a meeting with Roger at, at Canton right before the Hall of Fame game in August, right after he had suspended him for two games. And it was just the four of us with Michelle and the commissioner. And 
Chris point blank asked him, he goes, hey, did you see the in-elevator tape? And he said, no, I never did. He looked him right in the eye, looked us all right in the eye, and Chris believed him. Now, Chris has known Roger, I'm going to say probably as long as I have. I've known Roger for 25 years, and in my dealings with him, professionally, personally, I've never felt he's lied to me. Look, we could probably do another show on how I feel that whole thing was, you know, dealt with by the media, but Chris felt strongly about it. We talked about it. We knew we'd, we would get some criticism for it, but that was his personal belief, and that's what he wanted to say. I mean, if that report comes out and it says Roger Goodell lied, he knew what's happening. You know, we've got bells and whistles and alarms going off, but because it came out and said, hey, we find no credible evidence that Roger Goodell lied or anybody in the building had seen or had possessed the tape, it just gets lampooned by the media. So he just felt like, hey, this is what I believe. The guy's never lied to me, and I want to say it. We knew we were going to be criticized, and we did it anyway. And the statement itself that Al read? That's something we probably would, I would have probably done a little bit differently, but it was so close to what Bob Costas had done you know, an hour before. Again, we were trying to make it right from the Mueller report and not from us. You know, in that regard, we wanted to make sure the words were precise and from the report, not from us. But, hey, if I had to look back and do it again, I probably would have shortened it a little bit and, you know, still let Chris say what he wanted to say. Hey, Fred, can you do just one favor when you meet with Belichick next week? Yes. Toss him a deflated football. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fred. I have no idea what that is about. (laughs) (laughs) Fred, I will be personally tuning in to help you get that record. I want to be among... The record-breaking crowd. It's going to be a great moment for me. I hope it's a Hashtag great... Hashtag do it for Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, I'll send you a game ball if we do it. How's that? Uh, that sounds amazing. Okay. But yeah, I hope it's, hope it's a good game and hope uh, that you guys get all the right shots that you, that you need. So do we. Thanks a lot. Since the last time we talked to our next guest, Sheets of Ice have covered our planet, allowing men, women, and children of all ability levels to glide around on what are known as skates. To tell us what it all means... We are now joined by Greg Wyshynski from Yahoo's hockey blog, Puck Daddy, and the podcast Merrick versus Wyshynski, which you can find on iTunes and at sportsnet.ca if you prefer to spell the word favorite with a U. Hello, Mr. Wyshynski. Well, hello. And yes, uh, sheets of ice have uh, covered our earth, uh, which means that the National Hockey League will then find ways to monetize those sheets and sell a lot of gear on site for those outdoor games. Yeah, we had one in uh, D.C. that I was not able to attend as I was out of town. But are those outdoor games? Uh, this wasn't planned. This isn't a planned part of our conversation. I'm just ad-libbing here. Are those outdoor games still a uh, success for the league? Or is the novelty kind of wearing off? And why, I, I, and why the ratings they, went down, right? And why can't they j- rejigger the stadiums so that there are seats near the ice? I find it very distracting that there's no seats near the ice. Mm. The Capitals did win the game, which is the good news for the home team, hometown fans. But your 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 questions about the outdoor gimmick are are very valid, and I agree with you about the odd disconnect between the end of the the seats in the baseball stadiums, the football stadiums, and the gigantic gap to the ice. But you have to remember that you need a stage for Billy Idol to play on. So obviously, you you need that extra space to utilize for the incredible entertainment that they have at these Winter Classics. But, you know, the, the game itself was actually the most well-played game that we've had in the outdoor games. I mean, it was just it was a very good hockey game. If you put it inside of an arena, it'd be a very good hockey game. The problem is 
that it didn't have the trappings that we've come to really like when it comes to these outdoor games. You couldn't see the players' breath. I mean, it was like 43 degrees at game time. You didn't have any snow or any elements really affecting play. And, and you know, on top of the fact that there wasn't really a rivalry per se, and by that, by that I mean no rivalry between these two teams, it lacked all of the other things that make a casual viewer tune in and say, oh, wow, this is something different. So, so, how, so how long then, Greg, before somebody proposes that an NHL franchise be awarded to a team that plays all of its games at an outdoor arena. Like build an outdoor arena, you know, build basically an arena without a roof. So the seats are close. It's outdoors, open to the elements, you know, retractable roof if you want. Retractable roof would be interesting. It'd be an interesting home ice advantage. I'll tell you that. But, uh, you know, it's the novelty of it is, isn't what it used to be, you know, obviously with the number of outdoor games that we've had, but I've said the same thing to everybody else. You know, the rating has dropped is what it is. I think it has a lot to do with the Washington market being involved and not bringing the same level of viewership that uh, you get in other matchups. And that's why I think they're going right back to Boston next year to have the Bruins in Montreal at Foxborough as the next Winter Classic. And then the other aspect... They're going to play with deflated pucks. <laughs> trying to play the pucks. And the other aspect of it is, is that you, you, you need the venue and you need either a, an historic venue or a unique venue or an interesting venue. I think it's telling that uh, two of the lower-rated Winter Classics that we've had were the one in Philly and the one in Washington into cookie-cutter modern baseball stadiums. Well, I would also, first of all, let me note that the presence of Billy Idol leads me to believe that Adam Ant was somehow booked, but also they went up against good NCAA football games. I mean, I normally check in on that Jan 1 game, but I didn't. I think Michigan State was playing Baylor or something that has to do with it. It might have, but, uh, you know, they've, they've cut out their little niche on, on January 1st before the Rose Bowl, and, and I think they're pretty happy with that window. I mean, there are, there are problems with the outdoor game, but the, the bottom line for the league is that it's not so much about the ratings it gets on NBC, although obviously they'd like to get ratings to crow about it. It's about what happens on site. And, and now, at this point in the Winter Classics maturation as a, as a major sporting event, it's gotten to be like the All-Star game, where the television product isn't as compelling as it used to be, but the amount of interest and the amount of money they make on site is preposterous. I think it was a situation, I think the gate for the game was like $9 million or something like that, and the wow. average capital home game is like $1.5 or $2 million. I mean, the money they make on site justifies the existence of these outdoor games, and until the interest in these cities and in these stadiums uh, wanes, it's going to continue to be something that they do not only every year, but do more of. So, Greg, you mentioned an outdoor stadium. The NHL has the next best thing. It is a barn. It is in Nassau County. It is the Nassau County Veterans Memorial Coliseum. A lot of qualifiers in that name. The uh, Islanders will be leaving Nassau Coliseum for the most part playing at Barclays Center. I saw my first game there yesterday since 1993. Perhaps you remember 1993. That was the dawn of the new Ice Age. That's what the Islanders marketing called it. They made the, they won a playoff round that year. That was the last time that happened, 1993. But the Islanders are really good this year. How did that happen? Well, I'm surprised they don't play in an outdoor stadium. You, you would think that the asbestos in Nassau Coliseum would have eaten through the roof, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. That's why they've no. been so bad. Yeah. Asbestosis has crippled yeah. that team. No, don't worry. The, don't worry. The mold, the mold kills the asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> they've been so good because they're a well-put-together team, and, and it's, it's that perfect confluence of the maturation of great young players and the augmentation of a team's roster with veteran players. And I don't think enough credit's been given to their GM, Garth Snow, who is a guy who's, you know, taken his licks over the years for not being able to make this the winning team. 
he knew he had a good core of players. He locked them up for a number of years, John Tavares, Kyle Ocposo, players like that. And then in the off season, right before the season, in fact, he had Johnny Boychuk from the Boston Bruins, who Johnny is a Boychuk. perfect defenseman for this team, and also a guy who's, who's won a little bit in this league, which is something the roster also lacked. And then before that, he had a Jaroslav Alak uh, as the team's number one goaltender, a guy that people question whether he could handle the load of being the workhorse number one guy, and he's done it, and he's been the backbone for this team. So they're fun, they're exciting, they're, they're fast, and I've said this for years about the Islanders. Once we saw what happened in Chicago when the Blackhawks got back to their winning ways, how gigantic that bandwagon got, not only in the city but around the league, the same thing was going to happen when the Islanders got good. The, the, the nostalgia fest, the party for these people that grew up watching the dynasty teams, there's a lot of people around hockey rooting for this team and are really happy they've had the success they've had. So is the timing of the move to Brooklyn a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing if you like the narratives like I do, where it's the last grand hurrah in Nassau Coliseum and, and the last season that they're there, they get back to being a dominant franchise. And, you know, the stars are aligning right now in, in this Eastern Conference uh, where there is a distinct possibility the Rangers and Islanders could meet in the playoff series. And more, Lord knows what that's going to be like in, in the last days of the Nassau Coliseum to have these two blood rivals playing in a playoff game. It might be just something that just stops time here in the city. And the whole thing about hockey, and this is true with other sports, but definitely true with ha- hockey. We valorize the toughness. We talk about, you know, playing in Kamloops or some godforsaken town in Ontario. And these are farm boys. And it's not about affectation. But my God, if the arenas don't have 300 luxury suites and if they don't have heated chairs, I mean, it's not the wor- it's it's an arena. It's a freaking hockey arena. You sit down. You look at a ho- you look at players skating on ice. This whole trend. To every arena having to have to be, you know, beautiful and state of the art. Uh, it's so silly. Can we compromise? The Mike? seems fine. Can we compromise? Outdoor arena, heated seats, done. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's, I mean, hey, they, I, I've talked to the players at these outdoor games, and one of the complete luxury items they have are these heated benches. They're all about it. So, you know, spread that wealth to the fans. But you know, it's, it's a combination of two things really when it comes to these luxury arenas. The first is. We can't sit here and cry about uh, small market teams not being able to afford their players and say you can't sell all the luxury suites and have all the amenities you can possibly have to try to create as many revenue streams as you can. I mean, the bottom line is that hockey has a finite number of revenue streams in the U.S., and teams have to maximize the amount of money they squeeze out of customers that come to the arena because essentially that is the primary revenue stream for these teams. And the other aspect is it's just like the movies. I mean, just like how every film that's come out in the last few years has been uh, you know, upgraded to 3D, even though they're not filmed as 3D, they're done so because they're trying to squeeze as much money they can out of the people that are still going to see movies rather than pirating them. And for the hockey teams and for professional sports teams, you have to pump up your arena and create as many bells and whistles and create a game-going experience that is going to get some guy like me to get his behind off his comfortable couch in front of his gigantic television where he can not only watch that game, but 10 others in the same night. It's the in arena experience competing with the man cave uh, aspect of this thing too. So let's um, transition talk about PK Subban, who is the most fascinating player in the NHL, subject of two um, long profiles recently in SI by Michael Farber and in the New Yorker by Ben McGrath. And he also made news for saying on a uh, French language talk show, he was speaking English, the host was speaking French, uh, talking about 
his uh, strategy for distracting goaltenders. Let's listen to that. Okay, for instance, <laughs> so on game days, right, we eat a lot of, like, different food, like, you know, pasta, pasta. sweet potatoes, <laughs> like, eggs in the morning, lots of protein. And then I have, like, a coffee before the game, right? And you know, like, what happens when you eat all that stuff and you drink coffee. Sometimes the stomach doesn't take it very well. So (laughs) I try to hold it in, you know, until I get on the ice. And then I'll, in front of the net sometimes, I'll, you know, pass gas, right? (laughs) (laughs) Greg, this is a very smelly and fascinating character. Um, <laughs> what can you tell us about uh, P.K. Subban? Well, he is by far the, the most compelling character in hockey right now. And like you said, I mean, the idea that the NHL allows unchecked slashalism to uh, exist in its game. I mean, really, there they should really look into the performance-enhancing aspect of this thing. If he's eating baked beans for games, they have to keep this thing in check, obviously. But Subban is great, and, and there's the, the issue with Subban is that there's a lot of question about what you do with this guy. I mean, like... The, so he's a star he, defenseman for, the, for Montreal. He signed an eight-year, $72 million deal. He's considered by uh, most people, many people, to be the best defenseman in hockey. And yet his coach criticizes him, um, he's, you know, Don Cherry criticizes he's him. He's described as undisciplined, <laughs> and he's also black, which leads to, you know, questions about how race factors into all of this. But continue. He's the most prominent black player that the league's had since Jerome McGinley came into the league. And, and McGinley's case and Subban's case, they both played for Canadian franchises, which kind of makes it a little bit confusing for American marketers. For example, this, the cover story that you spoke about, or I'm sorry, the story that you spoke about with Michael Farber and SI, a beautifully written piece. Well, that made the cover of SI in Canada, didn't make the cover of SI in the United States. They didn't feel like Subban was enough of a selling point. So you see the, the disconnect here. Not only is it the hockey thing, but it's also a guy playing on a Canadian team thing. But as far as his, his impact locally, it's a fascinating story because you're right. He, he comes under incredible criticism. I was speaking with a reporter that covers Montreal on our podcast the other day, and he said that the French-language media after every game, win or lose, we'll find some fault in Subban's game. He, he is constantly attacked, and he's attacked by these guys that used to play and coach for the Canadiens who find his attitude to be deplorable. And, and you know, there's always this concept and, and this question of how much race plays into the, the undue criticism he receives. But the other aspect of it, like you said, is that he is a guy who committed to be in that market for a long time knowing the kind of criticism he gets. And, and that's what makes him such a special player, is that he can, he can thrive in that market despite being the guy who is targeted by, by media all the time. Can you characterize what kind of criticism we're talking about and which you feel like is justified and which is unjustified? Well, one, one of the biggest knocks on Subban has been his playing in the defensive zone. He, he's seen as a guy who you know, turns over the puck too many times. He's not as, as solid as the, uh, in his own zone as he is as an offensive defenseman, which is ironic considering he was, you know, he won the Norris Trophy for being the best all-around defenseman in the league. And this is a criticism that we heard before the Sochi games, too, in, in making an argument why he should or should not be on the roster. So that's the thing that he constantly hears. But, you know, it's, it's, 
it's always going to be a thing for Subban being an outspoken player and being a charismatic player uh, that he gets criticism from the it's the logo on the front, not the name on the back crowd. And, and I think that's part of the, the criticism he receives locally from French language media as well. All right, now on to the whimsical portion of our hockey conversation. Uh, Zemgis Girgensons, second-year player, 20 years old. He's okay, right? Plays for Buffalo. Not, not, you know, he's not, not the best player in the NHL. He's not some super rising star. But he is the leading all-star vote-getter. Why? Because the people of Latvia have massed to vote Girgensons into the all-star game. Apparently, you can click to vote for a player up to 10 times a day from the same device. And Girgensen rallied the vote. He did. And the, the NHL's uh, voting outside of North America, they said, has increased. Uh, the percentage points are in the thousands this season, <laughs> before compared to, to the previous All-Star game. It is the story of the All-Star game. Uh, there is precedent for it. If you remember back in 2007, a defenseman named Rory Fitzpatrick, fans got behind to vote for Rory. He was a lunch pail spare defenseman for the Vancouver Canucks and the fans nearly voted him into the All-Star game. And there are Roswell-like conspiracy theories that say that the NHL suppressed votes that were cast for Fitzpatrick just to keep him out of the game. Well, there was no suppression this time, and, and Gergensen's received more votes than any other National Hockey League player because Latvia voted him in, in, into the game. It's inexplicable. No one really expected it. But having met my share of Latvian fans while covering the Olympics, I just picture giant beer halls of these guys with their mobile devices punching away and voting for Gergensen's uh, for hours on end on the weekend. You posted a, a, a tribute uh, video to Gergensen's on, on the Puck Daddy not long ago by a, a Latvian rapper. I don't know if he was a rapper or just some guy, but it was a, a rap video. The lyrics are, are pretty awesome. Yeah, it's, it's the, 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 the Zemgis Gergensen's rap song and, and, and talking about wanting to roll into the club with Zemgis and things of like that. Why, why don't we play a little of it? Because it was so great. A commenter, I think a commenter on, on Puck Daddy actually translated it for you. Eggs are in the house and your legs are quivering. Girls are dreaming while cooking eggs in the oven. You're making me laugh when you say that you're a fierce opponent. You can't beat me while I'm alive. Yeah, but I prefer, I prefer uh, this, uh, this stanza. I see the coolest chick in the club and say, I'm your destiny, yo. But she says, I'm not as famous, just as Zemgis Gergensons. <laughs> it sounds much better in Latvian. <laughs> Greg, thank you, uh, as always, for being with us. Uh, All-Star Game in Columbus this weekend. Hockey Town, comma, Ohio. Uh, have a good time, <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Eggs are in the house, you. Greg. All right, it is now time for After Balls. We did uh, the UAB Dragon, I believe, before the European Dragon is an After Ball name. But the Islanders also had a dragon. So we're going to continue the After Ball Dragon theme. Mike, tell us what you know about Sparky the Islanders Dragon. Sparky the Dragon is unique, according to Wikipedia. That citation is needed for the word unique. Due to the fact that he wore two sets of colors, depending on which team he rooted for. Because he was originally the mascot for the New York Dragons Arena football team. The <laughs> Islanders just kept using him because they both played. I mean, the Dragon costume was there in the Nassau uh, Veterans Memorial College. Somebody found it in a storage closet. Yeah, put an Islander jersey on and we got a dragon. I 
did not see any evidence of Sparky the Dragon while I was at the barn, but according to some sources, Sparky the Dragon does exist, although the website SparkyTheDragon.com just redirects to the Islander's main site. It might be Sparky the Discontinued Dragon. Didn't the Islanders, course, he was discontinued once. Didn't the Islanders have on. that fisherman guy for a while? He was on yeah, their alternate yeah. road jerseys, but was alternate McDonald. jerseys. Mike, what is your Sparky the Dragon? As we know, Rex Ryan is now the coach of the Buffalo Bills. But before that was announced, I talked to presidential historian and Jets fan Julian Zelizer, who has written a new book about Lyndon Baines Johnson, about presidents, leadership, and Rex Ryan. Here's that conversation. So I'm here talking with Julian Zelizer, who's the author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. He's a professor of history at Princeton. He's written about Jimmy Carter. So you know leadership. I do. You know power. I do. You're also a Jets fan. A big Jets fan. You know, reading The Fierce Urgency of Now, in a sentence, it's that no matter how great or not great, and pretty great we think Johnson was, a lot of constrictions on what he could do. There's a great analogy to head coaching, right? Absolutely. Uh, look, I, everything falls on Rex Ryan's shoulder. Uh, but in fact, you have to look at the team. You have to look at the drafts. You have to look at the management to really understand why someone is, is going to succeed or not. Okay, but a great president plays the cards he's dealt and does as best he can. And when a situation presents itself, like it did in 64 for, for LBJ, you have to take advantage. Right. And on the other hand, it is true that when circumstances aren't right, he can't achieve much, but he does what he can to craft the circumstances. If Rex Ryan doesn't have a quarterback, he'll never be seen as a great coach because the team won't win. But isn't it on him at some point that he doesn't develop the quarterback? Well, he's part of the system. So you look at Lyndon Johnson and you can say he had these great circumstances in the mid-1960s and he took advantage of them. He didn't make mistakes and he ran with them. You could argue Rex Ryan after those first two years, the, the situation was pretty bad. He didn't have a quarterback a million other weeks. He had no cornerback this year uh, that could actually you know stop a pass. Um, but then he made mistakes within that context. It doesn't all fall on his shoulders. It won't be corrected with the new coach, uh, but certainly he still bears responsibility. Is there an analogy with a coach getting a new job and a president getting maybe a new Congress? Well, there, there is, but uh, the Jets management, uh, Woody Johnson, has to give a new Congress. And so that's the question. Are they just going to get a new coach, a new president, or are they going to actually change what has been broken now for decades, as any Jets fan knows? What were Rex Ryan's strengths and weaknesses as a leader? Strength is he made uh, the sport fun. Uh, he did have that schmoozing capacity that you could say Lyndon Johnson did. People liked him. They believed in him. Uh, they tried to win for him. But you could argue he's also a messy leader. He didn't have a clear game plan. Uh, he seemed to make bad decisions uh, on, on what plays to make. Uh, and he also uh, didn't have authority on dealing with issues like the quarterback. So he'd bring in two quarterbacks a year, basically, and make both bad. LBJ got the details right. And Johnson's, I mean, and Rex Ryan sometimes got him wrong, I think. He did. And I think Johnson had a good feel for the game, the political game. And Rex Ryan, who's very good at football, didn't always seem to have a feel for the game as it unfolded and would make calls that the fans in MetLife Stadium were just, you know, had their hands on their head, couldn't believe. There's one other thing. I think that Rex Ryan... You know, leaders have to use the carrot and the stick, and I think Rex Ryan was much more comfortable with the carrot. I, I don't think he disciplined, and I think LBJ used the stick. I don't think Jimmy Carter used the stick much. No, LBJ did use the stick, and if you crossed him or you made a mistake, 
he'd kick you out. Uh, Rex Ryan is, is a player's coach, and he doesn't like doing that. And so he would allow people who are making mistakes to continue making mistakes. San Antonio Holmes, who was you know destroying the team for a year. Oh, San Antonio Holmes. Yeah, and he was loyal to him. And so um, I do think that's part of his character that was a flaw. So, so LBJ wouldn't be loyal to a guy that he saw was hurting him. Other presidents no. would, you know, Bush no. would, but like loyalty was all that mattered for George W. Bush. No, Johnson loved loyalty, but yeah. he also understood winning, uh, and he wasn't going to let people who were harming him stay in his inner circle. Okay, last question: If LBJ were to get a tattoo of one member of Congress, as Rex Ryan did with Mark Sanchez, what member of Congress or the Senate would that be? You know, it would probably be someone who opposed them on a lot of things. It was a guy, Richard Russell, a Southerner from Georgia, but that was the person person who mentored him uh, and helped him learn the ways of Congress, even if he used those ways for very different ends like civil rights. Uh, so uh, I don't know who Rex Ryan's, you know, Mark Sanchez is a bad tattoo probably to have. <laughs> yeah. Um, was, uh, was LBJ into Lady Bird's feet? I don't know about his personal <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Julian Zalazar, author of The Fierce Urgency of Now. Jets fan. Thank you, Julian. Thank you. Stefan, what's your Sparky the Dragon? So as you know, Josh, because you edited it, I wrote a very long piece for Slate that posted last week about Merriam-Webster, its mammoth project to update its unabridged dictionary and the future of lexicography in these digital times. I'd be um, honored if everyone went and read it. Josh, you We're not doing it. a very good job this week. If we're doing this smoothly, I would have started off the afterball by saying, Stefan, you wrote a really great piece. It was even better than Mike's tweet, I think, uh, about the State of the Dictionary and Modern Times, Merriam-Webster. It's a fantastic piece. I urge everyone out there in all sincerity to go out and read it. Please continue your afterball step. Oh, thanks, Josh. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Well, in that piece, it happens, I address the question of whether in the bottomless well of the internet we need the same rigorous standards for admitting words to the dictionary that we did in the age of print. And the example I use is the word upfake, a term for feigning a shooting motion in basketball. Upfake turns out to not have very much usage so far. I found some instructional videos mentioned in the New York Times in a live blog and in a 2006 Bill Simmons column about the NBA MVP in which Dirk Nowitzki upfakes Chris Kamen, which I guess is not very hard to do. While I'd love for Simmons to have his sentence quoted when upfake makes Merriam's unabridged, I'd even more like for my favorite word to make the dictionary someday. I speak, of course, of sportocrat. I will declare up right up front that I did not invent this portmanteau word referring to the professional bureaucrats who labor for prestigious international sporting bodies such as the IOC and FIFA. But unsurprisingly, I have probably used sportocrat, it turns out, in print more than anyone else. Let's start with the spelling. The earliest uses seem to spell it sport-o-crat with an O. I prefer sportocrat, E-A-U-C-R-A-T. In addition to being faithful to bureaucrat, I think the E-A-U adds an appropriate whiff of the continent. So lexicographers, when you inevitably add sportocrat to your dictionaries, the E-A-U spelling should come first. Now on to usage. The notion of the term sportocracy, almost always with an O, has gotten a workout in academic and to a lesser extent journalistic contexts, but this is an entirely other sense, a place where politics and sports intersect or where sports influence social issues, like the tyranny of sports. A 2001 article in Agenda Empowering Women for Gender Equity refers to sportocracy as the phenomenon of sports reinforcing gender stereotypes in schools. An article in a 2006 book, Physical Culture, Power, and the Body, includes this line, needless to say, the sportocracy by virtue of singularizing and naturalizing bodies is what Paul Gilroy calls radiological structure. 
needless to say. Uh, there's an essay in a 2006 collection edited by noted sports academic Richard Lapchick titled Show Me the Money Created a College Sportocracy, the Influence of the Media. The American conservative used sportocracy as the headline on a post about Russia and the Olympics. I also found this excellent use in a forum on constructed languages. The nation of Essoria is a sportocracy, the poster wrote. I'll save you the details. It's a dis. Topian sports run state, whatever. As for Sportocrat, the late Christopher Hitchens used it in his memoir, Hitch 22, to describe a boarding school bully, a thick-necked Sportocrat with the unimprovable name of Peter Raper. That's more in the tyrannical sense of sports. My sense dates to the 1990s. I first used it in the Wall Street Journal in a 1998 piece from the World Cup in France about Nike, which, quote, relished being the in-your-face outsider who offended the sportocrats, the gray-haired men in blazers who control international athletics. Merriam-Webster lexicographer Corey Stamper informs me that later that year, a letter writer to a Sydney, Australia newspaper wrote, three cheers for the Sydney cab driver who introduced the Olympic sportocrat to the delights of our rail system. I used it again in 2002 about the next World Cup. It's classic behavior of the sportocracy, the men in blue blazers who think high-minded things about world sport while bribing and bilking and scamming. In 2008, a poster on a martial arts message board, I swear it was not me, wrote about the South Korean sportocrats and pocket liners. In 2011, Prairie Dog, Regina Saskatchewan's leading authority on both the arts and entertainment scene and local current affairs coverage, used the word in a post about FIFA. In 2012, Vice used it in a post about English soccer, generously linking to a tweet of mine in which I joked about World Cup Blazers depositing bribes in an ATM. It was a pretty good tweet, Josh. Not Pesca level, but a pretty good tweet nonetheless. Since my first usage back at the journal, I've used both Sportocrat and Sportocracy when writing about the 2010 World Cup for the New Republic and on NPR and, of course, once or twice on this podcast. So who is our Sportocratic founding father, Josh? I have always credited my former Wall Street Journal colleague, Roger Thurow, and with reason... I asked lexicographer Ben Zimmer, who happens to now write a language column for the Wall Street Journal, to check early usage. He turned up a May 1997 page one story by Roger about Nike's early struggles to crack the global soccer market. For the record, Roger used the O spelling. Here's the quote, and it's in a scene where he's sitting with Nike chairman Phil Knight. Surrounded by his casually clad fellow Eakins... Nike spelled backwards and the foot soldiers moniker Knight shudders at the thought of kowtowing to the sportocrats as he calls them and dreads ever becoming one himself. That would be my ultimate nightmare. He says, as he calls them, Josh, Phil Knight, everyone may have invented sportocrat. I'm not sure whether to be pleased or horrified. The Oregon football jerseys and sportocrat. The okay. guy, the guy has uh, had a varied career. Well, he said he would be it would be his ultimate nightmare. But I think those jerseys and the state of the Oregon football program really solidify his position as a sportocrat. Sorry, Phil. Josh, what's your Sparky the Dragon? Fans of this podcast may recall that I was not a big fan of Pete Thamel and Thayer Evans's 2012 Sports Illustrated cover story on LSU football player Tyron Matthew, aka the Honey Badger. Actually, browbeat Mike and Stefan into devoting a whole podcast segment to this story, so I could vent my spleen. And what spleen venting it was? Thank you, guys. There's for still little pieces of me. your spleen on the hang-up yeah. table. Um, splenetic and frenetic. 
to re- to remind you all the outlines of that 2012 story where the Matthew, who was a Heisman finalist the previous season, had been kicked off the LSU football team, which is a uh, disclosure, a team that I am a fan of. Uh, he'd been kicked off the team because he had failed multiple drug tests for marijuana. Thamel and Evans described him as not only being at the crossroads of his football career, but at the crossroads of his life, saying that said crossroads should feel familiar to him because, quote, three decades ago, his father came to the same point and washed out in a spiral of drugs and violence. If Matthew's father had come to the same point, you'd assume that because of parallelism, that means that he would he was kicked off his college football team for smoking weed. But no, what happened to his father three decades ago is that he murdered a guy. And he is now in prison facing life without parole. So Tyron Matthew, weed smoker compared to his father, murderer. Okay, fast forward to this week. Pete Thamel has a new Sports Illustrated story on the golfer Dustin Johnson. It is really remarkable how similar the facts of Johnson's story are to Tyron Matthews. Johnson has been suspended by the PGA Tour for the last five months, reportedly because he failed three drug tests, two of which were for cocaine, according to a report the Thamel cites from SI's golf site, golf.com. Johnson denies that. Uh, Johnson, like Matthew at the time his SI profile came out, is trying to get his substance use slash abuse issues under control. Though Johnson says he didn't go to rehab and that while he's cut out drinking, he didn't really drink all that much before. Um, and Johnson, again, like Matthew at the time his SI profile came out, is about to have a baby. All right, here are the differences, some of them factual and some of them contrast and how very similar things are portrayed. Thamel says very briefly that Johnson is tightening his inner circle, which Johnson refers to as Team Dustin. In the Matthew piece, Thamel and Evans go on at great length about how Matthew is part of, quote, a crew called Era Nation, made up of a dozen self-described athletes, rappers, and songwriters. And they write that what's good for Era Nation may not be helping Matthew. In the Johnson profile, his fiancée, Paulina Gretzky, uh, Wayne Gretzky's daughter, her pregnancy is discussed in strictly positive terms as a reason the golfer is settling down and moderating his behavior. In the Matthew piece, the impending arrival of a baby boy is listed as a reason he might relapse due to the added pressure that a child brings. Another key difference, Johnson, unlike Tyron Matthew, has had some real brushes with the law. Thamel writes, at 16, he, meaning Dustin Johnson, was involved in the burglary of a handgun that was used in a murder. He testified at trial, paid restitution for the burglary, and was pardoned. And in 2009, Johnson was arrested for DUI. The charge was dismissed, but he pleaded guilty to reckless driving. Also, while Matthew's father killed a guy, Johnson's father-in-law is Wayne Gretzky, who is described as being an incredibly supportive figure in the golfer's life. And finally, Dustin Johnson agreed to cooperate with Pete Thamel and sat for an interview. The Honey Badger did not. Thamel describes Johnson showing up to the interview with his agent and a PR consultant literally holding a set of talking points. And while Thamel does note that Johnson is reading the talking points, this approach to publicity clearly worked. The piece is about how this guy who is involved in the burglary of a handgun that was used in a murder, who was arrested for DUI, who has failed three drug tests and has been suspended by the PGA Tour for five months, is now a super nice family man who buys his fiance celery to satisfy her pregnancy cravings and gives kids lessons on the driving range. And all of that is probably true. It may be true. It's probably true. But it'd be nice if Tyron Matthew, a guy who his crime was testing positive for marijuana in tests administered by an entity that did not pay him to play sports, if he had been given the same benefit of the doubt 
An essay didn't imply that if he smoked weed again, he was going to kill a guy just like his dad did. I can't help but wonder how Johnson would be written about if he was a black college football player or how Matthew would be written about if he was a white golfer. Tyron Matthew did have serious issues. He said this summer he thought about suicide in his darkest moments. But at least to an outsider, he appears to be doing well now. He just finished his second year with the Arizona Cardinals. The only trouble he's been in since joining the NFL has been injury trouble. He tore up his knee in 2013. This year he broke his thumb. The woman he's now dating is actually the stepdaughter of the new New York Jets head coach, Todd Bowles. Maybe like Wayne Gretzky has done for Dustin Johnson, Bowles can give Matthew advice on how to be an upstanding citizen. I'm just not sure Tyron Matthew needs that advice. I have a Pete Thamel update that you might find interesting. What's that? So I went to investigate his Twitter feed and found out that I'm blocked from following Pete Thamel. I was wondering why. Was it something you said on the show? Was it my fault? I'm not blocked from following Pete Thamel. (laughs) No. Upon investigation, it turns out on March 30th, 2013, after Syracuse had just beaten Marquette 55 to 39, again, the final score, 39 for Marquette. This was in a 40-minute NCAA game. Pete Thamel tweeted, Syracuse assistant Mike Hopkins just told me, quote, our defense won this game. To which I um, to which I commented, Hopkins concluded by noting, quote, cats like yarn. I have since been blocked by Pete Thamel. Uh, is, are we sure there's causation there? Let's are we assuming? <laughs> right. I should say since that tweet, I have discovered that I've been blocked by Pete Thamel. But seriously, though, defense did win that game. I mean, come on. <laughs> and you know what? This really is Teron Matthews problem, Josh. I'm going to take issue with you. If he had a black labradoodle named Charlie, and a golden doodle named Daisy, he might not have gotten into the, pro- into the trouble that he did. We'd love your feedback <laughs> on Labradoodle-related matters and anything else we talked about today. Email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed. <laughs> Cats like yarn. That's good. <laughs> That's good. That might, be, that might be the second best tweet of yours that, of we've, day. that, we've, right. that we've talked about in today's show. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't note any early 20th century presidential foreign policy, but yeah, it's all right. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.